Our reading is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And we thank God for his word.
Thanks, Thelma. Good evening, everybody. Let's pray as we come to, to God's word. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father, that's our prayer for us this evening, that you would reveal more of Jesus Christ to us. And that you'd give us a more of a heart for one another, that uh, not only we'll be looking out for our own growth in faith, but we'll be looking to help one another grow in our faith and love for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've ever had children, um, you'll probably be familiar with a chart uh, like this or something similar to this. It's a, a growth chart. Uh, it tells you which, um, according to which percentile your child is in, uh, different ages, the likely height and weight they will have at a later stage in life. Um, whichever percentile we are in, um, the first 20 years of our lives are marked by a steep growth curve. Uh, after that, our growth in height remains flat, our growth in weight should probably remain flat, that's another story, but what if we were to plot a spiritual growth chart, what would that look like for you if you're a Christian here this evening? I guess for many of us, for many years, our our first years of faith might have been marked by, by steep growth and excitement about Jesus, a desire to read the Bible, to know it better, uh, maybe a, a desire to tell others about Jesus Christ and our faith. But how did that change over the years? Were the things that came along which affected your growth, maybe poor decisions that you made, maybe just some difficult times, maybe a temptation, a distraction? For many Christians, their spiritual growth chart might look like something like this. They they hit a plateau, maybe there's something's come along. But unless they then continue to grow, the likelihood is they may decline. Because the thing is, you can't just stop growing as a Christian. Um, you can't reach a certain level and then feel that you've made it. You don't need to grow anymore. If you're not growing as a Christian, then the likelihood is your spiritual health will be declining. And the book of Colossians is all about growth. Our verse for the year is all about growth. We read it again. We can't read this too many times. Can we so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. It's all about putting down deeper roots, uh, building deeper foundations so that you can grow and be strengthened in your faith. But why is growth so important? After all, we don't worry about um, growing any more in heights when we get to, to 20 or so. Why bother about growing any more as a Christian once we've been a Christian for 20 years? Once we know where we're heading, once we know that our ticket for heaven is in our pocket. Well, the thing about being a Christian is that it is about a relationship. Uh, and spiritual growth is about nurturing and growing deeper in that relationship. And the reason we can go deeper in our relationship with Jesus is because he is infinite. We can never know him fully. 
He is supreme, as we looked at last week. But to grow as a Christian is a battle, um, because the devil doesn't want us to grow. Uh, in fact, he wants us to give up our faith. Um, but the good news is that God doesn't expect us to fight this battle of growth on our own. He's given us each other to help us grow. When we become Christians, we become part of God's people. We become part of the church, and the church is there to help us grow in our faith. It is in the words of one of our mission statements that we're here to equip each other to love Christ wholeheartedly and to live out the gospel in all of life. Well, last week we finished chapter 1 with these words from, from Paul writing to the church in Colossae. He writes, He, that is Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This isn't a hobby for Paul. This is not something he does when he's got nothing else to do. This is his life goal. This is his whole purpose in life. The fact that you are here this evening probably means that you take your own spiritual growth seriously. But how much of a concern do you have for the spiritual growth of others? Because this passage is not just helpful for our own growth, but it's helpful for us to know how we can help each other, how ultimately we can serve the church. And there are four points um, about helping others grow in their faith that come out of this passage we're going to look at this evening. And the first of those is that helping others grow in their faith is a struggle and a delight. It's a struggle and a delight. Paul said there in verse 29, to this end, that is to present everyone fully mature in Christ, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And as we go into chapter 2, he carries on. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those allowed to see and for all who have not met me personally. Paul is strenuously contending. We talked last week about all the suffering that he's gone through, how he rejoiced in his sufferings. And that word translated contended or struggles, in other words, in other translations, um, uh, it comes from the Greek word agon, from which we get the English word agony. Um, it's used to describe an athletic context which is agonizing. It shows the energy that Paul is pouring in to his ministry. And the amazing thing is he doesn't actually even know these people he's struggling for. Um, he's never met them. The church in Colossae was set up by Epaphras, who was converted in, in Ephesus through Paul's ministry. And yet Paul is struggling to help them grow. He's also not even in Colossae. <clears throat> so how can he be strenuously contending with all his energy for them? Well, we can only assume that he's struggling for them in prayer. I wonder how many of us would describe our prayer life as strenuously contending for the sake of others. Maybe strenuously contending to get down to pray in the first place, but once we are there, will we say we're strenuously contending for others? We might be strenuously contending for all our personal needs, all our problems we got, we're wrestling with. But what about others? We're in Ephesians 
Paul calls us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Well, Paul may have struggled greatly in his ministry and may have caused him great hardship at times, but it also caused him great joy. As he writes in verse 5, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The wonderful thing about these verses and the reason why Paul is able to struggle in prayer is that he had a real delight in his ministry. He loves people. He's passionate for them. But you can't struggle in prayer for someone if you don't love them. Yes, you can send up a, a token prayer. But unless you truly love someone, you won't be able to <clears throat> pray for them in the way that Paul does here. And you won't truly love them unless you truly love Jesus. <clears throat> Paul hadn't met these believers in Colossae, but they shared the same relationship as he had with Jesus. Paul uh, was a great inspiration. But it's not just apostles like Paul who are called to show such devotion to the work of Christ. It's all of us. How often do we pray for our brothers and sisters, not just in this church, but in other churches, in other cities, in other countries? You may be thinking, well, if I don't know them, how exactly do I pray for them? What do I pray? Well, have a look at verse 2. What Paul says, he writes, My goal... But for gold, you could replace my prayer, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a prayer that is asking that these believers, wherever they may be, would know more of Christ who, as we saw last week, is the supreme creator, the sustainer, the head of the church, the one who reconciled all things to himself. But notice that the prayer doesn't just focus on the goal of the prayer, but on the circumstances in which the believers can grow in their knowledge of Jesus. And that is that they are encouraged in heart and united in love. If you're in a church that is divided, where there's conflict, where people are not living out their faith through love for each other, that's going to be a tough place to grow in your faith, isn't it? It's when we're loved by other believers that we experience Christ through them, which in turn helps us to grow in our knowledge of Christ. We can't grow in our faith in him without being an active part of a loving church. And that's a great prayer of thankfulness, isn't it, that we are part of a church like that. Helping others grow in their faith is a struggle, but it's also a delight. It also requires a challenge. Helping others grow in their faith requires a challenge. Paul exhorts them in verses 6 and 7, which is our verse for the year. There it is again. He starts with those words, just as you received Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus as Lord. What does that mean, though, to receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Well, it's not just receiving the teaching about Jesus. It's about trusting, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ. 
is the anointed king who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. It's receiving him as Jesus, the saviour. Accepting that salvation, new life, is found only in him. But it also means that we are accepting him as the Lord of our lives. As we were looking at last week, we're accepting that he is supreme. Which means, as we said before, giving up our desire for supremacy over our own lives. Giving up our desire to get our own way. So Paul is saying you began to live in him when you received him as Lord, and now the challenge is continue to live your lives in him. Keep going. Don't give up, he's saying. But it's not a, a keep going, don't give up. Use all your, your physical strength, all your mental strength. Dig deep. Um, like some of us might be watching later on on SAS, Who Dares Wins. No, this is continue to live in him. Rooted and built up in him. I don't know how many gardeners are here to see them, but I'm sure they will tell you the health of a plant will depend on the quality of the soil in which it's planted and in which the roots can grow. If your spiritual roots are in Christ, then they have an infinite space in which to grow. And so likewise, you have an infinite potential for growth. Your ability to withstand attacks on your faith won't depend on how strong you are, but in what your faith is rooted. If you're rooted in Christ, you'll be secure. Which is what this word here, strengthen, means. But if you're tempted to root in something else, then it's going to be vulnerable. And that leads us into the dangers of rooting it in wrong things that we'll come on to in a minute. But before we do that, let me ask you a question. What are the marks of a faith that has been strengthened, a strong faith? I'm sure there's lots of things we would have come up with if I was to put that question to you. But it's interesting what Paul says here, isn't it? It might not be the first thing that comes to mind, but a mark of a strong faith here, he says, is that it's overflowing with thankfulness. And the reason that's so important is because if you are so busy being thankful to God for all the many blessings you're receiving from him, then the devil's not going to be able to get in and make you angry or critical or impatient about things that are going on. It shows a gratitude for what God has done. An unwillingness to let our own failings or the failings of others get us down. When you go off to work tomorrow morning for some of you, or you bump into somebody in the street, or wherever you are, <clears throat> just count how long it takes before they start moaning about something. There's always something wrong, isn't there? Always um, somebody who's done something that's irritated them. Somebody who hasn't done something they should have done. As Christians, it's very easy to slip into that way of talking. But we should be noticeable by our lack of a critical spirit. We should be noticeable by our thankfulness for all of God's grace seen in so many different ways. Well, having said the Colossians, the challenge to continue in their faith, Paul goes on to warn them about the dangers that might prevent them from growing in their faith. Have a look at verse 8. He says, see, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It's a general warning about being taken in by human teaching, by tradition. In other words, what the world believes 
rather than depending on Christ himself. And in verses 16 to 23, we have three specific risks Paul says they should look out for. And it's these I want to have a look at before we finish with the encouragement of verses 9 to 15. And they're all instances of pride. And the first warning is that of the pride of legalism. Verse 16 says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. What was going on here was that there were some who were saying that the way to God, the way to spiritual fullness, was through keeping all the dietary laws and the special festivals of the Old Testament. Now these food laws, the festivals weren't a bad thing. You know, they were designed to encourage the people of Israel to, to think about purity and impurity, to remember what God had done for them in the past. But as it says here, it says these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality or the substance, however, is found in Christ. Shadows are always produced by substances, by real things. Paul's saying, why waste your time chasing shadows rather than looking to where they're coming from? What they're pointing to, Jesus Christ himself. And what he's saying is, most important is not obeying these laws out of a sense of ritual. Most, what's most important is the attitude of our hearts. So, for example, with the Sabbath, we no longer worship on the Sabbath because we worship on the, on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, which commemorates the resurrection of Jesus when the early church met. It's still important to keep that day special when we can focus on God when we can spiritually recharge ourselves through fellowship and corporate worship. But the motivation for that should be a desire for God to grow deep in our relationship with him rather than keeping lots of rules to make ourselves feel good. I've done that. I've ticked that off. I'm okay. As we are called to live our lives in Christ, are our lives filled with thankfulness for what he has done for us? Or are we relying on the things we do, the rules we keep, to make us feel good? We need to keep checking our motivation for our behavior. Because um, if we're not careful, instances of pride will find their way into our lives. Like the mice have found their way into our house. Set the traps. Get rid of them before they proliferate. Well, the second warning concerns the pride of superior experiences. Have a look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Now, it's not easy here to see exactly what Paul is getting at with the worship of angels. It it may be a certain group of people who didn't feel good enough to pray to God directly, and therefore prayed through angels, even though we are told Jesus intercedes for us. So it's not really humility, it's actually a false humility that Paul is criticizing here. He's also talking about people who who claim to have had great visions which have made them proud. 
They like to talk about their, their visions more than about what Jesus has done. And these revelations have become more important because they were the only ones who had them. And that makes them feel superior to others. If you think of the cults, the Christadelphians, the, the Mormons, JWs, Christian scientists, they were all started by one person who claimed to have superior knowledge. What was their problem? Well, the problem was, as it says here, they lost connection with the head. The head is Jesus Christ. All of them deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Beware the pride of superior experiences. And finally, beware of the pride of false piety. Have a look at verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things which are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The sort of things Paul was talking about here were those that banned people from doing certain things. You can't do that if you're a Christian. Show how holy and pious you are. But the thing is, they weren't biblical. They, weren't, they were rules that human beings had come up with for the purpose of showing how holy and upright they were. They weren't following these rules to please Jesus, but to make themselves look good in the eyes of other human beings. And again, the key warning here is don't get caught up in the trap of doing something to appear holy to others in order to make people think how good you are. God is the one who knows our hearts. Well, having warned the Colossians about the dangers, how does Paul encourage them? Finally, helping others grow in their encouragement requires, helping grow in their faith requires encouragement. Last week, we learned that Jesus is Fully God. We read that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We said, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And that is repeated here in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. But then it continues with something even more amazing. Look what it says next. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Be brought to fullness in Christ means we don't need anything else from anyone else. We have all we need in Christ. He's sufficient for all of our needs. We live at a time, don't we, where we're being constantly bombarded by advertisers telling us what we need to make our lives complete. If only we have this latest thing. Since Christmas, we have someone new in our living with us now. Her name is um, Alexa. She's very responsive, very knowledgeable. Does she make our lives complete? No. Does keeping the rules, just having superior experiences, living a pious life, make our lives complete? No, our lives are complete in Jesus and what he's done for us. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He supplies all of our needs. He supplies grace Wisdom, strength, courage, just when we need it. As Charles Spurgeon once said, you will never 
know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. As we continue to live our lives in him, we experience the satisfaction of his fullness. It's like a continual stream that is overflowing. And the passage goes on to to tell us some of the ways in which we experience that fullness. The fact that we have died with him, we've been buried with him in baptism, we've been raised with him to new life. We've died to our old sinful way of thinking. In Christ we've been set free from the power of sin. In Christ we've been delivered from the guilt of sin. Have a look at verse 13, what it says there. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The charge against us is the fact that we are guilty under God's law. We've continually failed to meet his high standards, and however hard we try, we will never meet them. But God has cancelled that charge. He's taken it away. He has nailed it to the cross with Jesus when he died there. And so when we, when those we know are struggling with maybe the guilt of the past, maybe struggling with a feeling, have we done enough? We need to encourage each other with the truth that in Christ our guilt has been dealt with. We're no longer condemned. We are free. We have died to sin, and in Christ we have been raised to new life. Our old empty life in the darkness has been replaced with a new full life in the light. And we don't need to seek fulfillment in anything else. We have it all in Jesus Christ. In Christ we have the victory over sin, over death. We may still be aware of those spiritual powers it talks about here and authorities around us, those um, evil forces that would seek to undermine our faith, that would seek to make us captives again. But let us encourage each other with the truth that in Christ we have the victory. The charges against us have been nailed to the cross and dealt with forever. And that's what we're going to celebrate in a minute with the Lord's Supper. The Christ's victory over sin and death and the fact that we can enjoy now communion with him and with each other in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it's wonderful to finish with this great encouragement that we no longer need to worry about finding fulfillment in anything else because in Christ we find true fullness. And we praise you for that. We praise you that in Christ our guilt, our sin has been taken away. It's been nailed to the cross. That charge has been cancelled. Lord, encourage us if we need that reassurance this evening. Help us to encourage one another. Lord, we want to to grow in our faith in you. We want to be strengthened in our faith. We want to overflow with thankfulness. And we want to see those around us grow in their faith. Lord, so give us that real concern for each other. Help us to struggle for them as well as in our own walk with you. And Lord, give us also that delight as we see people firm in their faith and growing in their faith. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.